Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And Andrea, I am ever so ready to just skip with you into a field in this episode Mm -hmm. and just like roll around in some hay until a massive phallic object descends into the countryside. But before we do, uh, I think we should tell everyone or remind them that our next episode is going to be a live episode at Salem Horror Fest. Yay! Our editor's like, yay, I don't have to edit. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, Alan gets the month off when that happens. Uh But uh, we're going to leave all the information in the show notes, so please check that out. There's an incredible lineup this year over two weekends at the end of April. We're going to be there the first weekend. We'll tell you what the film we're doing is at the end of the episode, uh-huh. so keep listening. Uh, but Andrea, you're also doing something fun. I'm going to do a Q&A with Tony Todd, guys. That's going to be the fun. special guest. Yeah, we're going to have a big, long chat. And God, sometimes for interviews, it's like, what am I going to ask him? It's like, what am I not going to ask him? What am I going to omit from the conversation? Because I have so many questions for that guy. What a king. He has had such an incredible career. He's a horror icon. I am excited that I get to be there to see it. Um, I believe we're going to be doing our live show on the Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then on the Sunday, I'm going to be doing my lecture about cats and horror. Meow. So meow, meow, come check that out if you're around. Um, but if you're not, the live episode will be our April episode. Right. And this is the first time that Salem Horror Fest is doing it in the spring. So if in the past you've been kind of roadblocked by Airbnbs and <laughs> lack of availability, check it out. We definitely have. And it, it, Salem's beautiful in the fall, and I imagine it'll be beautiful in the spring too. I'm excited. But before we can even start to think about Salem, we have a, I think what's going to be a really fun episode. A rocket of an episode? We are going to have a rocket of a time. Is it going to be out of this world? We're going to mutate the fuck out of ourselves. We are going to turn to goo with a big old Hellboy fist. (gasps) So true. (laughs) So true. I'm so excited. Today we're talking about, for some people, this is an iconic film. It's part of an iconic series. Others may have never heard of this. It might kind of fall into the, the cult classic canon of horror for you. But today we are talking about the 1955 film, The Quatermass Experiment. That's right. Is this your first time seeing it? I had seen this years ago, but I kind of grew up a little bit with the mythos of Quatermass and the Quatermass experiment because my dad was born in 1944. So we'll talk a bit about the origins of this film, but uh, spoiler alert, it started as a BBC series. And so he watched it when it was... Wow. And like still has memories of it. I mentioned it to him the other week when I was talking to him and it was like, I remember watching that with your uncle Cedric and we was, everyone was so scared, but we just had to tune in. And it was like the country kind of came to a standstill to go and watch it. And so many of the episodes were lost and the BBC tried to film them and it didn't really work. So now it's just this kind of cultural memory. Uh Um, And then it got turned into a film. Right. Um, I feel like I had seen this, um, when I was getting started in Rue Morgue, I was kind of trying to pin down the basics, like the fundamentals. And, and this one kept coming up as, as foundational, foundational for modern horror, foundational for modern sci-fi. And so I watched it back in the day and I was like, no, no, that was fine. But I got a lot 
more out of it on the rewatch. I think what's unique about it really comes through. I'm interested in the BBC series. Have you seen that? Well, so many of the episodes are lost. So there's a few that are still kind of floating around. Mm -hmm. um, but they were doing stuff like teleplays at the time. So it was like live. Mm -hmm. And then they were broadcasting it. And then they had a camera set up to film it being captured. Okay. But then there's a whole like breakdowns of what happened. But it was really uh, new technology at the time. So a lot of it just didn't work. Right. Uh, and then there was apparently uh, for one of the episodes, a bug landed on the lens oh, and just stayed there for like a very long time. Um, so I think you can still track down some of the episodes, but I believe it's uh, six episodes. Okay. And so I think there's only two or three floating around. All right. So before we get too, too ahead of ourselves as we are wont to do, let's go ahead and get into it. The 1955 British sci-fi, The Quatermass Experiment. Or The Creeping Unknown, as it was uh, released as in the States. And uh, Andrea, I appreciate that you're doing the alternate pronunciation of Quatermass. It's, they both sound stupid coming out of my mouth, but I figure if you go one way and I go to the other, one of us has to be right. Great. And then we can't be 100% wrong. Twitter can never get mad at us, then. Right. I love it. You can't escape it. Maggie, Look! Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. Beware of the creeping unknown. This woman is about to learn a terrible secret. She will never be the same again. Because this man knows that same secret, he will never speak again. To both of them has come terror in the form of the creeping unknown. Three men went into outer space. Only one of them came back. Came back a strange, distorted creature, haunted and possessed by something beyond human understanding. What was the terrible secret he could not tell them? There's a whole new world out there, a wilderness, uncharted. And he's been there and come back. He's got the map. Unlock his mind for me, Briscoe, and find it. I know you can do it. It isn't just a question I know the strain and tension you've been under, but to stop now when we're so close. Brian Donlevy, he dared an experiment that shocked a nation. You've destroyed him like you've destroyed everything else you've touched, Kent. There's no room for personal feelings in science, Judith. An experiment that created the Creeping Unknown. I want to call around the entire area, evacuate all public, get information to check up every movement that's likely to take place inside this radius tonight. Yes, sir. Warn everyone not to touch anything unusual they may find in the streets. When a rocket meant for outer space research crash lands in the British countryside, a group of experts, including the man behind the mission, Dr. Bernard Quatermass, arrives on the scene. Once they enter the ship, they discover only one crew member of the three who went on the mission has survived. Their surviving crew member, Victor Caroon, is taken to a special laboratory where he can be monitored. While there, disfigurement and changes to Caroon's bone structure are revealed. 
Meanwhile, Inspector Lomax of Scotland Yard begins to investigate the disappearance of the two other men on board the ship. When the scientists review footage of the mission, they deduce that some kind of outer space life form or entity has entered the ship and Karun's body, which is now causing him to mutate. While the scientists are busy, Karun's wife breaks him out of the laboratory. When his wife realizes the transformation that's underway, she screams and Karun makes a run for it, killing a chemist and zoo animals in his wake, but sparing a little girl as the mutation speeds up. As Quatermass studies samples from Karun, he determines that as Karun reaches his final form, he will begin to release spores that will infect others. The now creature has reached Westminster Abbey in London, where Lomax and the police begin to corner the creature. Quatermass arrives and has London's power sources redirected so they can electrocute the creature while it is in the scaffolding. The creature is burned alive before it can release its spores, saving the day. As Quatermass leaves the scene, he remarks to his assistant that he's going to start again. Dun, dun, dun! I don't think it actually does that, but... It, it might as well. Might as well. I have to say, I we've never really talked about 50 sci-fi mm-hmm. on this show before, but I have a real soft spot for it. Because mm-hmm. it's, like, campy. It's overwrought. It's over the top. It's silly. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's always this, like cutting sliver of darkness mm-hmm. that just is like chilling yeah. throughout it. And I love that. I really respond to it. And I think it's um, fantastic. And as we were talking about, I think Quatermass and the films that he's been involved with as a character are so interesting because he was like, for a brief period of time, kind of like the James Bond of horror. Like he just kind of keeps popping up in different like sci-fi missions yeah. because there's Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and then Quatermass and Pitt. Yes. And then the BBC redid Quatermass in 2000 and five, I believe, mm-hmm. with David Tennant. Yeah. And it's worth noting that, um, you know, you mentioned before the trailer that this was renamed The Creeping Unknown in America, and the sequels were also renamed in the U.S. Quatermass 2 is Enemy from Space, and Quatermass in the Pit was Five Million Years to Earth. <laughs> Not super sure why. I mean, I have a bit of a theory. I feel like American audiences, they just kind of assumed that they should highlight the threat as opposed to the hero? Yeah. And I mean, heroes back then weren't necessarily older scientists. Well, yes. And I definitely want to get into whether or not Quatermiss is a hero or a villain or a what. Because he is like not only our touchstone throughout the plot, but he's also the the agent of that stinger mm-hmm. at the end that just drives a sliver of dread right into you. Yeah. No, and he's, uh, we'll call him a protagonist for now. Good. Ish. Love it. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah, he's the connective tissue between it all. Yes. And definitely cast a long shadow in this part of horror and this part of sci-fi. But as we mentioned, uh, this film is based on Nigel Neal's 1953 BBC series, which which was, as we already mentioned, a sensation. Now, the British film industry at this time in the 1950s was really struggling, as many areas of England were at this time. They had come out of two world wars. They had, you know, dealt with devastating bombings from the Nazis. They lost generations of men 
uh, who were sent to fight. And it was a really, really rough time to be British. My dad grew up in that era. He constantly talks about the rationing, the um, issues within society, all the things that were very oppressive. And it wasn't an easy life at that time, but it was very much like this attitude of keep calm, carry on. What else are we going to do? We have to keep going. This kind of period as we, you know, get out of World War One, was really d- the decline of the empire following what happened in World War Two. It was just exacerbated. And, you know, it was not an easy time to be a Brit. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where we get into some of the horror history that Quatermass experiment touches. And during this period of kind of a drought in the British film industry, they were importing a lot of film from the States. There is this youngish company Hammer. They'd been making films for a long time. Um, They'd been making all kinds of films for, you know, 10 or so years. And they were pretty bullish about making a film of the Quatermass experiment, understanding that it was this huge sensation on TV. And now we need to get audiences back into cinema, supporting British cinema. So let's make something that is not so family friendly, that is not so, uh, you know, easy to watch. If the audiences are watching at home, maybe they'll want to come see the more extreme version of it in the cinema, especially because it's not like it was running on reruns or streaming or anything like that. And this was a really interesting time in the 50s. And, you know, I think film all over the world had to kind of reckon with the advent of not only TV, but TV becoming popularized and getting into everyone's homes. So it was like, I can just stay home Mm -hmm. and watch my entertainment. I don't have to go to the cinema anymore. So film was having to make itself distinct from television. One of the ways they could do that was through ratings. Now, the British have obviously, you know, come into a lot of uh, issues with censorship, particularly in the films when you get into the 80s with the video nasties. But here, one of the things that is really interesting is that Hammer was so about getting this film an X rating. And at this point, an X rating just meant for audiences 16 and older. (laughs) And I loved in my research, I found out that the X rating replaced the H rating, which stood for horrific. Oh my God. Rated H for horrific. And I was like, perfect. But they felt so cute. Rating it H for horrific was too narrow. Uh And so they were like, no, just, you know, it's, it's, too much for anyone under 16. So at the time, this was kind of seen as a uh, bit of a scandalous thing to do. And there was some conjecture about why the film was like experiment without the E at the front. Yeah. Um, And so it seems like some of the consensus I read was that it's, you know, X first experiment because they wanted to highlight the X rating. Yeah. Which makes sense. Although looking back on it, I mean... A lot of the money shots, they cut away. It's not super gory. You see the monster burn. I also was like pretty horrified by the monster. Were you? It, like, you know, when you were just kind of seeing all these kind of like sad little mutations and, yeah. you know, weird makeup effects for a while, then you're like, oh God, Karun's a big blob. Yes. With, like tendrils and uh-huh. stuff like that. And a tentacly and bleh. 
So when I think of these 1950s science fiction veering towards horror films, I tend to think of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, The Thing from Another World, The Blob, all American films and deeply indebted to an American ideology. And I think what's so interesting about Quatermass and why it has, you know, withstood as this, you know, cult pillar within the genre Mm -hmm. is because it is taking a lot of these American tropes and transposing them into England. And I like that it's wrestling with how do we take these tropes and turn it into a national discourse. Mm. One of the important counterpoints when we talk about this film in distinction to the U.S. science fiction horror is that we have England, which was at this point a country in decline, versus the American versions, which were uh, a country in the ascent. Yes. At the, pretty much the height of their power. Uh-huh. And uh, there's a great book. We'll link to it in the show notes called Hammer and Beyond by Peter Hutchings. And he writes a lot about this film. And the BBC series for him and the film are largely seen as the start of British horror. It gave audiences something they were lacking and it was really successful at it. And, you know, this period that we're in right now in the 1950s, this is when the Cold War is really, really ratcheting up. And, you know, when we think of the Cold War, it was this, you know, war that was fought through spying, surveillance, proxy wars. It Mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, there wasn't a big bad like the Nazis. So these films really performed, you know, sometimes in a very propagandist way, uh, you know, giving meaning to monsters and creating these monsters in a popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And as the British film industry was in decline, the audience who was still going to the cinemas was younger than the traditional audiences that had been going prior. Uh, But that traditional audience was staying home. So by giving this new audience an X-rated sci-fi horror film, it signified this non-family audience. It helped create, identify, and activate a new market while selling them on, and we'll talk about this, this notion and this buy-in to the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. You can feel that right from the very beginning. We were joking a little bit earlier about the teenagers frolicking in the hay and and how tropey that has become as an intro to a horror film. It's like the innocence of these teenagers who think that they're sneaking off to get up to no good, which in this case is giggling and frolicking. I mean, I just love, like, I've watched the opening to this film so many times because they're literally, like, giggling and laughing through a field and then they jump. me, They jump into a pile of hay for the roll in the hay that they may never have. No, but... When they heard a weird noise, just the fact that their impulse was to run for cover while hers was. And he was kind of like, wait. And she was like, fuck you, yep. Steve. See ya. I remember the sirens. I remember that. It's a very cool. It, it made me think about how nowadays, you know, there are all these plans in place for school shootings. Like we're, we're, we're all prepared. We all have contingency plans for the threat of the moment. And then it was, you know, duck and cover. Yeah. And I mean, even before that, especially in England, like the air raid sirens, which were huge part of especially in and around London you know like the Nazis are fucking coming like the bombs are going to start dropping yeah hide yeah like there's a real collective memory of that yeah even my dad will talk about that to this day which while he wasn't around for because he was born in 44 his um his parents his his aunts like they were all part of that I'm not going to bring it up with him great I prefer to talk to him about Tommy Wiseau (laughs) (laughs) yes please don't trigger my father thank you So one of the things that really strikes me about the Quatermass experiment is not only is it very firmly located in its time, anxieties about Cold War, uh, specificity about 
the UK, which, you know, I know next to nothing about. I tend to think of things in uh, in American terms, which again, I don't know that much about because I'm Canadian, but it's how I tend to think of things. But it did remind me of when I was going to school and we talked a lot about sociology and science and sociology of science. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sticky wicket just because sociology is so it tends to be very defensive of the fact that it's a science. It's a social science. Mm. It's a soft science and so it's always like, "No, we're scientific. We do experiments, we test theories, we this and this and that." It doesn't appear to be as conclusive or factual as the so-called hard sciences like biology, chemistry, medicine, etc., but it follows the same method. And where it really differs is that it deals with matters that are less tangible. Science's reliance on observable fact is often depicted as antithetical to, say, religion or philosophy or things that are like abstractions because they're largely unprovable. And yet we can't say that cultural belief and ethical attitudes don't have tremendous impacts on society and indeed to the scientific method itself. Specifically, uh, there was a sociologist by the name of Robert K. Merton, and this guy is like, let me say the godfather of sociology. He wrote extensively about a lot of different branches within sociology. He's the one responsible for strain theory, which was uh, describing the relationship between criminality and the American dream, that if, uh, if legitimate avenues toward prosperity are blocked, then that's where crime is gonna like it did seem so adoy and he also came up with something called the matthew effect which is that the rich get richer oh yeah was it called that i really wanted to be able to explain it but i couldn't figure it out it has to do with a passage from the bible from the book of matthew where it's just kind of like unto those prosperity shall have more prosperity oh yes that great scientific text the bible i mean you know and it's not even a great quote. It's not even like, <laughs> this is why, or because God says. It's just like, because. Well, if our resident uh, lapsed Catholic can't figure it out, then I'm fine. I wanted on. it to be more interesting, yeah. but I couldn't get to the bottom of it. Anyway, but I did get to the bottom of uh, Merton's idea, Merton's anxieties about the emergence of, of science. And he was writing in the 50s. And it was, as you said, a time where, you know, science was firmly established. But post-World War II, people are like, oh, shit, science can be used for evil. We can use scientific methods to commit genocide. We can use scientific methods to develop nukes. And this was something that was hot on everyone's mind. And so Merton came up with um, four basic norms of science that are necessary conditions for science to be considered the extension of knowledge. If science is going to be considered the extension of knowledge, which it largely is, it needs to meet these four conditions. And uh, there's a really cute acronym for it. It's KUDOS. (laughs) C-U-D-O-S. KUDOS. So the C of KUDOS is communism, not that communism. (laughs) Alex's eyebrows went up. I was like, this fucking guy, he just slipped right under McCarthy. a lot of balls. Communism, in his view, refers to all scientific knowledge ought to be shared with the scientific community, and any intellectual property is given up in exchange for recognition. That's the C in kudos. The U 
universalism, that all claims to truth are treated as valid regardless of gender, race, religion, or nationality. Okay. The D is disinterestedness, that science should be done for its own sake outside of personal or profit motives. And then the OS is organized skepticism, that we take nothing for granted and all ideas must be tested and subject to structured outside scrutiny, peer review type thing, or like if you're going to draw from so-and-so's research, you also have to test that research, basically. Now, I can tell by the look on your face, I don't need stats or anything to prove or describe all the ways these norms have eroded over the years. I'm literally just being, like, our last kind of big scientific thing that happened to all of us was, you know, the vaccines. Yeah. That's, like, I like, generally speaking, hearing it for the first time, I like that framework. It sounds reasonable and thought through. And I'm like, oh, we just weren't there. Yeah, yeah. Like, we're, what, 60, 70 years later? And it's like, that went right out the fucking window. That's right. And it's purely sociological. Like, none of this is hard fact. It's just like, well, if we're going to call this stuff the truth, and if we are going to pursue science in a certain way, we have to do it right, or else we're not actually furthering our knowledge of the universe. We're actually going backward. Yeah, so... You know, I actually know somebody who invented a new technology for mapping out the brain. A friend of mine. I I think you you might have actually met them. I know them through Roller Derby. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we're very good friends, and he's brilliant. He's a fucking brain scientist somehow. And uh, he developed a new technology for mapping out the brain in 3D, and I distinctly remember having the most surreal conversation with him where he had to actively decide whether or not to bring his research to the university or to sell it in the public sector and be a gazillionaire. Like, it it was an actual moment in his career. He gave it to the university. That's good. Yeah. He liked working there and he was well paid and he was like, I'd rather, I'd rather help people. But holy shit, it's fucked up that this is even an option. Wow. I was also reminded of the fact that when I had my concussions, going Mm. back to roller derby again, um, I went to a sports clinic and I discovered that a lot of the research about concussions was largely out of date and there was a lot of myths. Like all that shit about you have to stay awake for 24 hours, that's bullshit. And everybody knows that now. But at the time, I was having a really hard time finding proper informed care. And shortly after my concussions, all these hockey players started getting concussions. And then the NHL was funding research into concussions. But where was that research going? To further the medical community? No. To treat these fucking athletes because they were human human investments. Yeah. All this to say, not to be depressing on the faculty of horror, <laughs> but Jesus Christ, Merton, have we gone a long way from your norms of science? Science isn't pure. Science isn't intrinsically good in and of its own sake. It can be used for those things, but it needs to be bound by ethics. Well, it's interesting because this framework coming in the 1950s, like there were so many scientific advancements prior to the 1950s. Like we got, you know, kind of where we are today because mm-hmm. uh Medical, war, like all of these advancements in those fields, you know, science, you know, understanding the world and the universe and all of that. But each of those had their own kind of internal biases Mm -hmm. that, you know, like you look at eugenics, you look at, um, you know, the healthcare system in regards to like women and things like that. It's so fucked. Yeah. How, and I think that's where we start to get like this discourse around mad scientists, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because they wield this power 
power that is, you know, within their brains um, that they can problem solve, that they can figure out solutions, but it's kind of at their will. Mm-hmm. And we're just all like, oh, hope we're all playing nice. You see the seeds of like the erosion of the optimism Mm -hmm. that we can conquer the universe. We can understand the natural world. We have science now, but then it's just like, what if we fuck it up? What if we don't know everything that we think we know? And and I think that's a hallmark of of the mad science time. And, and I really appreciate how that appears, how that's depicted in the Quatermass experiment, because you see tensions between institutions. Yeah. Right. Like just even in that carload going to see the rocket at the very beginning, you've got Quatermass who Kind of an unconventional scientist Mm -hmm. uh, cinematically. He seems very gruff. Like I think initially the first time I saw it, I was like, he's a cop or an investigator because he's just so bullish the way he looks. But he's coming up at odds with the Ministry of Defense, uh, the police, Karun's wife, and like even the fire departments there is like, what do we do? Well, we can't do that. Well, we don't want to do that. Damn it, just do it. And he's American. Yeah. He's this American dude just like fucking showing up and being like, I'm going to run this stuff. Uh And it's like, okay, but you're in England. That's right. Yeah. You play by our rules. I think all of those tensions inherent in that make it a wonderful time capsule. You can see why this is so influential. You can see why it's so foundational. Mm -hmm. So I went to uh, a book by one of my favorite film writers um, who I've talked about before on this podcast, Peter Biskind. And it was his first book, Seeing is Believing. And it's all about American films in the 1950s. And while we are talking about a British film, he has a lot of really fascinating insights uh, when he talks about science fiction films from this era. And, you know, as we were talking about with this kind of amorphous threat of the Cold War that was so undefined, these kind of fictionalized emergencies in the film were ones that brought humanity together to face a common enemy. Um, These were conflicts between Earth and space, East and West, local, national, pro and anti-government. So really like opposite sides from each other. And within this, the scientists and military often worked side by side. A relationship, which is Andrea, you and I were just talking about, grew from wartime advancements, um, such as the Manhattan Project, which is all about the atomic bombs and, and things like that. Uh, but like at the same time, we were talking about in the context of World War II, uh, you know, there were, you know, the overwhelming atrocities of the Nazis. And then you get these real, like, moral, like, fucked up areas, like the uh, dropping of the bombs in Japan, which were seen as, like, the necessity to end the war. And I think only... I don't even know if it's recently, but it's, you know, only been kind of, I feel very peripheral to this discussion of understanding, like, that might have been really fucked up. Yeah. And ongoing fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that's something that we're still kind of, like, parsing out, but I don't know if we're doing a great job. I don't think we are. And so Biskin talks about how these conservative films often lent authority to the military or the law enforcement, while scientists were filled with a kind of Frankenstein-esque hubris. Science is useful when it affirms the traditional or conservative values, but it can also go real bad real quick. And 
essentially what these films tend to do is they tend to other and vilify and turn into monster anything that exists outside of a social norm. And these films make the horror a threat to the uh, sanctified and controlled way of life. And so it's like, okay, the scientists might be able to do these few things that can push us ahead, but we can't let them get away with like being out of control, you know, getting high on their own supply, Mm -hmm. essentially. That's interesting because I couldn't help but think Karun's wife Mm. is the one that allows Karun to get away. Uh, she thinks that kind of within the sanctity of, of their relationship and their marriage, wife knows best and I just need to get him home where I can take care of him better than science, better than police, better than medicine. And what winds up happening is he gets loose and all hell breaks loose. So like, is that a critique of the nuclear family's ability to resist the inexorable pull of science? So I picked up on that kind of thread of Karun's journey mm-hmm. throughout the film. And it's Essentially throughout the film, he's kind of having all of these little, you know, to harken back to Frankenstein, you know, when Frankenstein's monster gets loose and he has all these different encounters with humanity that kind of shape our vision of it. Karun has something similar and... It's essentially his movement away from the nuclear family. And Hutchings, in his book, Hammer and Beyond, talks about this as well. And um, he really pinpoints this notion of the British welfare state and the nuclear family as a site of production. So after the devastation of the world wars, the Labour Party won the 1945 election and remained in power till 1951. During this period, they established what is now known as the welfare state, which had universal health care, social safety net stuff, Etc. Etc. Which is a good thing because England needed support. It needed to build itself back up, and it was grappling with these unimaginable horrors that were still kind of leaking through the ecosystem of through stories, through experiences, through understanding and uncovering what had actually happened during the war. But ultimately, in order to build back up England to maybe not a superpower once again, but into like a functioning country, it needed workers. We lost two generations of men to two different wars. So the men who were coming back in whatever shape they were, and that was my grandfather, um, needed to have kids. Mm-hmm. And so the sanctity of like this nuclear family and the power around it was that sense of having a site of production. Mm-hmm. If you can produce children, you are contributing to society because then they will turn into the labor. Right. Now, the Quatermass experiment as a film, it becomes kind of this conservative nightmare as Karun flees work, mm-hmm. his wife, a child, the national health system when he goes to the chemists, um, and then this controlled natural world in the zoo. And it causes this kind of mixture of harm and fear and this depletion of resources as he absorbs. Like that's what the mutation is. He's absorbing all the stuff from like cactuses to zoo animals. So he is depleting resources by not reproducing in the sanctified and traditional way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it, yeah, it's Karun being like that. And as for Judith, her sin was not staying home and pumping out babies. Well, yeah, or just not understanding it. And I think, you know, if you want to possibly a more generous reading or a more dare I say, sociological reading of it might just be like, if you can imagine these men coming home from war, if they came home at all, Mm -hmm. missing parts or just being traumatized by what they had seen, like their wives were like, honey, I'm so happy you're home in some cases. Um, 
let's go back to our lives. And they're dealing with this immense fucking trauma. Mm -hmm. Who's like, I don't know. Ah." Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember I, I never met my grandfather. He died before I was born, but I, you know, talked to my dad a lot about him and, you know, my dad really loved him. And he was like, he just never spoke about it that much. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. my grandfather was in the Navy. So it wasn't like he was in trench warfare, right. which sounds like a terrifying hell that I couldn't even imagine. But there's just a lot of really dark things. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we deal with this generational stuff of like, what happens when this person you married is gone for, you know, months to years and then comes back with Something they can never really explain to you. Yeah. And inability to function and contribute to society. is. That? And they're held up as heroes. Right. And they're held up as like, this was a thing you had to do. You fought evil, which they did. Like, yeah. it, you know, they didn't have a lot of choice in this. And it was through propaganda, through like necessity. Like, you have to go save Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you got to hope the fucking cavalry shows up. Yeah. Not fun. War sucks. <laughs> so... Quatermass came out just a few years before the space race started. Mm -hmm. And I had to do a little bit of research into the space race because just as I was talking about the ethics inherent in science, just because we can do something, should we? Should we think about the ramifications? Should we think about where we're allotting these resources? And I almost feel like Quatermass was like a cautionary tale that went unheeded mm. when you look at the space race. So the space race was uh, a competition between Cold War rivals, right? Basically the Soviet Union and everybody else. And like, you've got to ask yourself, is this the appropriate social circumstance to explore space? Like, did we go when we were technologically good and ready or were we motivated by the political desire to be the first? And that was very much the case. It was the summer of 1957. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union announced plans to launch satellites. And in typical Soviet fashion, their program was under strict secrecy from both its own populace and the rest of the world. Launchings were not announced until they took place and the cosmonauts were not named until after they had left. And this is just a little factoid. Uh, the Soviet Union launched the first one, uh, Sputnik 1, in October of 1957, and Sputnik 2 launched the following month, and it sent a fucking dog into orbit. Yes. You knew that? Yes. Leica the dog was never expected to survive the experiment, and she died of overheating hours into the flight due to an air conditioning malfunction, a fact that wasn't released to the public until 2002. And then as for the U.S., the first two Vanguard projects failed, bringing about what is now known as the Sputnik crisis. The fact that the Soviet Union beat them to the punch was a real period of fear and anxiety, and they spun it that way. In 1958, Eisenhower addressed the public, admitting that the Soviets beat them into space and that this had two major ramifications. One, if the Soviets continued to win the race, it might be used as a means to undermine American prestige and leadership in addition to a possible military threat. So there was real fear mongering mm -hmm. going on at this time with regard to the space race. And he urged his people to meet these challenges by scrutinizing their school curriculum and standards. Like, this is all up to us. They beat us into space. But if we want to be the superpower that we believe ourselves to be, we need to ramp it up. 
And so this is a very sociological explanation for why, like, we're so desperate to get into space when we have yet to really solve our problems on this planet, much less take things outside. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've been talking about it a lot this episode, that so much of science and innovation stems from fear. Yes. And, you know, there's some very real fear, like people get sick and we need to solve that. We need to cure diseases. We need to do those things. But there is the kind of, oh gosh, what if we're last? Yeah. And it's interesting to think that coming out of World War II, when the Soviet Union and America were allies, and you know both of those nations were needed to de- defeat the Nazis and you know that access, um, that the uh, next iteration of the war that developed as the Cold War was between these two allies. And that this anxiety and this villainization of the Soviet Union, which, you know, there's a lot of real things to villainize about them, um, really came through in science fiction. Mm -hmm. This um, fear of conformity and this fear of, you know, what Biskin talks a lot about in, in his book about how the invaders were often from like a red planet and Hutchings talks about that too Mm. and Hammer and Beyond they're from the red planet so it represents you know China or the Soviet Union and that kind of you know group think was something to be very very fearful of and that when we look at kind of this British science fiction entity in the Quatermass experiment uh, it has this lack of specificity in what it is because we see that footage from the mission which is kind of like a weird little take on found footage within the film and it's just like oh things are happening and then it's like this kind of space fungus yeah gets in and that's what it is and then you know as Karun begins to mutate it's like oh he's got spores and uh this almost earthy but other Mm -hmm. thing is coming in and I you know we've definitely seen this kind of like fear of you know fungus among us you know in the last of us which is kind of re-entered popular culture but the space race was such a tangible thing that people could kind of get into Mm -hmm. and understand as like oh we need to beat them Uh, we need to put a man on the moon and you know that was I believe a big part of John Kennedy's whole race to the presidency and um, you know in this era of intangibility. It was like, here's something we can do that will make us better. That's right. Than them. Yeah. And it's, it's part of like, we talk about the manifest destiny of yep. a lot. We've talked about it uh, specifically with regard to American and British imperialism. It's a sociological concept. And uh, I took a look at the NASA website just for the shit of it. Like, if you look at what's written there, I've got a quote. Humans are driven to explore the unknown, discover new worlds, push the boundaries of our scientific and technical limits, and then push further. The intangible desire to explore and challenge the boundaries of what we know and where we have been has provided benefits to our society for centuries. Name your fucking sources, first of all. Second of all, like, it's so lofty and ideological, Mm -hmm. even in this very scientific day and age, human space exploration helps to address fundamental questions about our place in the universe and the history of our solar system. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's, I don't know. I I, I think it's really going back to Merton and how we've already butchered 
those norms of scientific discovery, the space race really flies in the face of all of that. And when it comes to the Quatermass experiment, like what was the experiment? What was the hypothesis we were testing? Well, I think it's fascinating that we never know. Mm -hmm. And it's just like Quatermass is like off into the, you know, fog of London to try again. And I think that's why it's so telling that the site of this film, the site of the horror, takes place in England, a place that's in between two warring nations that was once itself like the ruling empire Mm -hmm. of the world and, you know, went from rural Britannia to, oh, we're trying to keep it together. We're falling behind. We're decimated. And, you know, I think they were also trying to get in the space race. But again, like they had much more pressing problems than, you know, putting people into space. It was rebuilding their society and ensuring that, you know, there would be a future for them, which still not going great. That recklessness really comes through. And so that uh, when we look at like the American films, and I'm a really big fan of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I think we will do an episode probably in the not too distant future on Invasion of the Body Snatchers films. But um, there it is so like, it is this thing that is going to stop the American way of life uh, through conformity. So you have to conform to the American way of life to defeat it because otherwise we lose that. So I think there is a kind of interesting dichotomy of like giving up conformity of one for the other kind of conformity, which is more sacrosanct in this. But in Quatermass, what we have is this nation that is just like, what the fuck, my dudes? Yeah. Make a mess, clean it up, ask questions later. It's decidedly unscientific. It is ideological, it is political, it's cultural, it's not scientific. And I find it fascinating that the climax of the film takes place in Westminster Abbey, a historical site in London. And you've got this like blob monster thing in its scaffoldings, uh, which, you know, kind of speaks to internal repairs that are needing to happen to these institutions. Mm -hmm. And then this completely unknown thing has taken up like residency within it Mm -hmm. and it's just like lobbing on is like i'm gonna put my spores out through this yeah and it's like no we need to take all the energy from other parts of london and zap this fucker to wherever yeah and in the scaffolding right like it's kind of it's kind of poetic it's like it got in through the cracks yeah crumbling there was you know the systemic faults within these systems Uh is how it got in. And it's very, I think, fully realized in in terms of a a narrative conclusion to this. And it only got more so in the years that followed. Yeah. There's also one moment towards the end of the film that I want to touch on. And um, it's as they've gotten the creature and they're cornering it in the uh, scaffolding of Westminster and there's TV crews showing up and they're like, no, 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 we've got to cut away. We've got to cut away. Stand by stained glass window. Camera three and scaffolding, hold it. I'm Inspector Lomax. You've got to get two people out of the alley. Right, please, coming on to you, camera three. Everybody in that building may be in deadly danger. We're on transmission. Come on to you, camera one. Pan up as high as you can. Now... What in the name of? It must be 20 feet across. Fuel transmission. Camera one, hold that shot and lock off, and everybody out. Yes, you'll just have to carry on as best you can. We can't go on here. Yes. Yes, fill in, will you? 
I think it was an interesting, maybe subtle commentary about this is how far TV will take you. Mm-hmm. We're going to show you this monster and then we're going to show you it being fucking set on fire. Mm-hmm. That's how you get an X rating. Yeah. That's why you got to come to the theaters. It felt like a weird change of pace when you went into the TV studio and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, they're trying to say something here. And I also thought of that when Quatermiss and, and the others were gathered around to watch the footage uh, that they got from the spaceship and they're just like looking so carefully. And so, of course, we're all looking really carefully at it too. Not much is happening. It's grainy, but you're glued to it. Yeah. Just waiting for something to happen that's going to explain everything. And when it doesn't, it just kind of reminded me what it must have been like to be beholding the space race and beholding that grainy footage and just history is happening maybe find out and see yeah and even when you get access to it how much can you fully understand yeah so i wanted to bring in as we wrap this discussion up uh, an essay from 1965 uh by susan sontag called the imagination of disaster and it's a fascinating essay highly recommend it will be linked in the show notes uh and it's all about American, well, it's all about science fiction. She focuses a lot on the American side of it, mm-hmm. um, but she has some really interesting points about how it began to, as we've already talked about on this episode, help us realize what this new disaster is. And, you know, she talks about how previous to 1950s, you know, and we think about genre films before then, there was much more innocence to them. And so these films had to grapple with a new lack of innocence that we all had coming out of the two world wars. She also writes about how these films are used to galvanize audiences, populations, cultures into those set of specific social norms that we've been talking about. And she has this great quote in it where she says, to quote, there is a vast amount of wishful thinking in science fiction films, some of it touching, some of it depressing. Again and again, one detects the hunger for a quote, good war, which poses no moral problems, admits no moral qualifications. And I think, you know, as we've talked about with, you know, you're fighting the Nazis, you're fighting like genocide. These are things that people can really get behind. Then it also becomes murky when you dig more into, again, you know, the Japan angle of it and elements like that. And uh, it's interesting because we're still seeing the very real effects of it to this day. Like if you look at the war in Ukraine, that's, you know, Russia just trying to take back areas that it had occupied during World War II and just kind of held on to and just didn't backtrack out of. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's always this kind of land war that is being fought over previous ideas, previous idealism. And, you know, I I watch a fair amount of the news um, because apparently I'm a masochist, but there's, you know, every update I feel like I see about or I read about with, you know, the U.S. and like allies and Canada and the U.K., it's all about giving Ukraine weapons, which it needs to defend itself, you know, but it's like that's we are still using technological advancements and like hoping and praying that Russia doesn't use the nukes that we all pretty much know they have right to do something really scary and really dangerous and the way we talk about it the way we grapple with it is uh, always trying to get us on the one side of things and Sontag talks a lot about how the uniformity of what we fear of the invaders will bring some kind of inadvertent mirror to the uniformity that already exists within our planet and our culture and society and attempts to affirm that adherence to it as i was mentioning when we other something we just conform harder to the thing we were already in mm-hmm. um and and she talks about the mad scientist in these films and a great great quote i really loved from her is 
Evil has no attribution beyond that of the perverse will of an individual scientist, which is something we've already covered on this show. And I think it's interesting that while England is struggling and trying to, again, maintain some semblance of a status quo and reestablish that status quo, again, site of production in the nuclear family, you've got Quatermass, who has not only destroyed parts of England, Mm -hmm. but almost destroyed the entire world. And this final stinger is, you know, confirming this lack of decency while affirming the bravery of British law enforcement. You know, it's, you know, Lomax and his guys, like they were there, they were on site, they were on it while uh, Quatermass was just like, what's this creepy creature going to do? And then like the sheer detective work of Lomax was like, oh, we actually need to track this thing down. Mm -hmm. And I also found like the scenes in the zoo quite affecting and, Mm -hmm. you know, very eerie and unsettling. And I I think there is something about the way these characters are all upholding parts of society. And the one character in Karun who is rejecting parts of society is the true monster. He is the other, he is the thing everyone you know, Quatermass and others can look at and say, that's the monster. Mm-hmm. And Quatermass pretty much gets off scot-free unless you're, you know, really paying attention as an audience member and going, oh, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, about how like he makes this mess, but he's still, he's still quite involved in cleaning it up. But at the same time, he doesn't learn anything. At the Mm. same time, it's like, you know, the parallels to Frankenstein you mentioned earlier, uh, especially with regard to the little girl, like um, Karun is the monster, but he's also something of a sympathetic monster. We're also, you know, feeling for him a little bit. And and when he does depict those remaining shreds of humanity, they matter to the narrative. But it's like, just imagine Victor Frankenstein surviving his ordeal, destroying the monster and being like, I'm going to do it right over again. (laughs) Going to do it again. Yep. And you're going to fund it and you're going to like it and you're going to clean up my mess. Yeah. And two more movies. Yeah. It's not like Lomax and Scotland Yard just start arresting him or anything. He just kind of saunters off. No. That's why he gets sequels. I haven't seen the sequels. Uh, I watched this week for the first time Quatermass 2, which I enjoyed. I I, I enjoyed this one more. Uh, But Quatermass 2 is still pretty fun. Um, It's way more about bureaucracy. Okay. Within the government, within law enforcement, things like that, within kind of even the private sector. Uh, So it's kind of an interesting take. It's it's a bit of an inverted version of this. So uh, it's also on YouTube. You can find it. You can check it out. And I rewatched Quatermass and Pitt. Um, which is also a great film um, and very evocative and kind of has that like 1960s swinging London, but also a bit of a like kind of panic. And it's interesting how much, because that one is like technicolor and it's bright and it's... I feel like that's the one that I hear about the most. Yeah. The most discussed in terms of its relevance to uh, horror history. Yeah. And it's really fun. I mean, I will say it gets, you know, real obvious when they bring out the um, quote unquote monsters. They look real artificial. It's obvious that they're. It's it's like a little like. Did you buy that at Dollarama? <laughs> is that a tchotchke? What is that? <laughs> but it's still fun and obviously a classic and and for good reason. Well, bringing things back to planet Earth, guys. That is our episode on the Quatermass experiment. But let's talk still about the future. Let's talk about what if we were to go to Salem and we were to do a live show. Well, and the good news is for all of us, while we are going to be in Salem, Massachusetts, uh, the thematic elements of Faculty of Horror will not be leaving England. 
We're going to be tackling some folk horror. That's right. We are going to be tackling Blood on Satan's Claw, which is a film whose shadow has been looming large on this podcast. I think we've done folk horror episodes, Mm -hmm. so it'll be interesting to look at this film specifically and to bring that in. Kayla Janice, who is the director of the documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched and the corresponding folk horror box set that came out from Severin, is actually the keynote speaker Mm -hmm. of uh, Salem Horror Fest. So we're going to see her there, and we wanted to tackle a folk horror classic and that's what we're gonna do it's gonna be fun i think this is gonna be a first ever for faculty of horror because we're gonna show our cars Uh, neither of us has seen it neither of us have seen it it's been a glaring hole in my horror history watching and i guess i was just waiting for the right moment the right time the right festival yeah and uh the time has come let's get weird let's get witchy Let's marry Satan. Let's do this. So until the next time your partner mutates with a cactus. Office hours are closed.